Where we really went wrong was the entire premise and conception of the podcast. Welcome to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast where two friends watch movies that we both love this week because it's an episode on the fives. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. And this week we are watching the 1995 classic teen comedy Clueless. Brie, what was your experience with Clueless prior to this episode? So I don't think I watched this while I was in high school. Guys, I missed all of high school. It's not clear what all went on, but I think I stumbled across this bad boy either late in high school or in college, definitely not in 1995. Chris, what do you remember about Clueless? I have a sister who is two years younger than me, who was the prime target audience for this film. So I saw it in the theater with her. She immediately purchased it on VHS (laughs) and watched it, I think at least partially, every single day. Oh, wow. So I have seen (laughs) Clueless many times. I think that I wouldn't have loved it as much if I hadn't been essentially indoctrinated by her love of it. It is a very good movie, but I was brought in at least half against my will. Well, it does feature two replaying favorites faves, Dan Hedaya, who was in A Life Less Ordinary, and Paul Rudd, who Chris slandered repeatedly during Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, both of them appeared in episodes where we weren't necessarily on the same page, so I'm glad that they receive a redemption and that I think we're going to both enjoy what they're doing this time around. <laughs> Let's not attach the horses to the cart before the movie is watched. I mean, we've both watched this film. Yeah, no, I've watched it pretty recently. Excited to watch it again. It's going to be a great time. We'll see you after the break. Welcome back from the break. We just watched Clueless, the 1995 film written and directed by Amy Heckerling, who you might also know from Fast Times at Ridgemont High or the Look Who's Talking series. It stars Alicia Silverstone, Stacey Dash, Brittany Murphy, Paul Rudd, Donald Faison, Elisa Donovan, Brecken Meyer, Jeremy Sisto, Dan Hedaya, Wallace Shawn, and others. It is loosely based on Emma. Emphasis on loosely. It's the story of... Cher and Dion, the most popular girls in school, who take the new girl Ty under their wing. After setting up two teachers at school, steering her new friend's love life, and watching Dion navigate her relationship with her boyfriend Murray, Cher realizes her true feelings for her ex-stepbrother Josh and goes on a self-betterment campaign to win his affection. The movie had a $12 million budget and grossed $56 million at the box office, but has since become a huge cult classic. Everyone loves Clueless. But everyone may or may not include the two of us. Brie, how'd you feel watching Clueless? (laughs) I mean, as predicted, I still love Clueless. I will say that even in your description of she tries to win the affections of her ex-stepbrother, like, again, just anytime we watch any of these critically, I'm like, oh, should they have done that? And they maybe shouldn't have. Like, maybe Paul Rudd could be someone else, a family friend, perhaps, but... Overall, Clueless is still doing most of the good work. Uh, Chris, what did you think? I had the exact same experience of occasionally feeling deeply uncomfortable about what was happening with these high school age characters. Yes. There's some residual 90s throughout, but this is 
a consistently charming, funny, enjoyable film, and I could watch it literally anytime. And so much of that is resting on Alicia Silverstone, who is in, I think, every scene in this movie, pretty much. And I don't think she gets enough credit for just how funny she is. Like, I think the movie even thinks that they cast her because she's like, beautiful and charming. But like, she's very, very funny. There are a couple little moments she has that are just drop dead hilarious. I agree. She is absolutely carrying the film. A lot is put on her shoulders. She's Mm -hmm. only 18 when this is being filmed. Wow. Oh, wow. And so a parallel to Cher, the actress that she is named after and who we did our last On the Five episodes about, there are four Alicia Silverstone vehicles that come out in 1995. Good for her. Didn't we also discuss her as a possible casting choice for Amy? I think that if we were to do a Gone Girl movie, she would be a great one. I think part of the issue is that she is, I believe, about the same age as Reese Witherspoon, who also weirdly auditioned for the lead in Clueless. So I don't think that she would have been right from that angle. But if we had made the movie somehow 10 years earlier, probably before the book was written, then yes, she would have been perfect. (laughs) So if she's 18 when they're filming this, how old is Paul Rudd? Okay, so here's some age stuff in general. Yeah, Alicia Silverstone is 18. Paul Rudd is 25, maybe 26. Okay. Brittany Murphy is only 17 and needs a parent on set throughout. <laughs> Stacey Dash is 28 years old. What? Wow. <laughs> yeah, Stacey Dash is older than Paul Rudd in this film. She looks incredible. And notably, Paul Rudd himself is also ageless, but I never would have put Stacey Dash as almost 30 when they're filming this movie. Fully 10 years older than the person she's acting against the entire movie. You cannot tell. She is paired against actual teenagers throughout. I started to say, like, I can't imagine what that experience must have been like for Stacey Dash, but I think we do need to pause and acknowledge the fact that, like, Stacey Dash has gone a bit off the rails over the last number of years. Let me say this. It is much easier to appreciate her performance in this when it's not something like we did last week where we had to talk about like child pornography. So she's mostly embarrassed herself, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I have to assume that she made some sort of deal with the devil where she would look like a teenager well into her 30s, but then she would have to go on Fox News. That was like (laughs) the compromise that was made. Listen, she looks fucking incredible, and I won't take that away from her, even if her political views are a nightmare. I mean, maybe that's what happened. Maybe she just spent too much time with teenagers, and her brain was, like, unable to come out the other side. I mean, she is really good in this movie, though. She brings the teenage energy. She is not just looking young. She's acting really well throughout. That's why I wanted to bring it up because she obviously is not very popular anymore. But I think she's really great as Dion in this movie. I think she and Silverstone have really good chemistry together. And one of the things that I noticed watching it this time is how much Ty replaces Dion, especially in the back like third of the movie where you don't see Dion in the last like 20 minutes of this movie. Yeah, the plot structure of this is really strange, which I never noticed. I had kind of forgotten that there's a lot of movie after Cher realizes that she is in love with Josh. 
I kind of remembered she has the realization in front of the fountain and then they're just together. But there's a whole like back end of the film that I think I forget because it is a little slower and a little less interesting. Yeah, it's pretty clunky. Maybe we'll talk about it when we get there. But it doesn't really have the dramatic tension because we can very clearly see that Josh is not interested in Ty whatsoever. <laughs> like, and so there never actually seems to be a roadblock between Cher and her goal, I guess I'll say. In discussing our issues with Josh as a character in general, it is concerning that he has gone off to college but seems to pursue exclusively high school age girls. Like, these people do not have their driver's licenses yet. He does appear to date that one, like, mean feminist girl. But other than that, it's not great that he doesn't appear to have enough to do at college, that he's just, like, helping out his former stepdad and hitting on every teen he can find and, like, going to teen dances. Yeah, he's just really ingrained in a high school that is not his own high school. He's not even going back to hang out with, like, old acquaintances. I was never uncomfortable when I was in high school watching it, but now it's like, ooh. And part of it is also definitely that Alicia Silverstone, by virtue of the fact that she's 18, and the fact of the way that they have her dressed and styled, really looks like a teenager. And Rudd's character, while he's presumably only like supposed to be maybe 18 or 19, I think he's supposed to be like a freshman or sophomore, maybe in college, they have given him the world's worst goatee and a bad haircut. So he's been aged up. Like Paul Rudd has never looked more 26 years old than he does in this movie. And it just exacerbates the age gap between them, which is already gross. And we should say, or I would like to say, Paul Rudd is really good in this movie. And importantly, this is the first Paul Rudd film to be released. It is his second movie. He was in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, but that comes out <laughs> after this. Okay, please but go on. <laughs> this is very early in the Paul Rudd timeline, and he's really good. He's actually really incredible in it. I was surprised when we did the Romeo and Juliet episode that Clueless had come first because it feels to me like... Romeo and Juliet is kind of a bit part and then you get cast as like the romantic lead. But he has all the pieces that you need for a romantic lead. Like he and Silverstone have good chemistry together. But he also really sells like the heat in that final like moment where are they or are they not going to kiss? It's pretty like melty eye stuff that he's doing. Is that is that a thing? What am I talking about? I think a lot would be fixed if she were a senior in high school and about to graduate. There's something about her taking her driver's test that just pushes the line for me. Yeah, if she was a senior, I think it would be... It's just it's just tough. Like, <laughs> I do think part of it is also like the styling because she's got that blue shirt with a heart on it at one point that like I had in 1995. And the writing also accentuates her youth and her innocence, like so much of the character is wrapped up in her still figuring herself out in really fundamental ways and being sort of young and flighty. So she doesn't seem mature in the ways that Josh is sort of portrayed as. He seems older and wiser in a way that you're like, ooh. I have a bone to pick actually with some of the characterization of Cher because sometimes she's like, 
pretty smart. But there's that scene where Cher explains to Ty what sporadic means. And then in the scene right after that, like, she doesn't know the definition to some other word. So, like, they present her as really smart sometimes and also as really dumb sometimes. And maybe that's just them trying to get high school student out of the mix. But her characterization is a little uneven. I think that's fair. I do think they're trying to position Cher as striving to be better. And that is like a through line throughout the movie. Also, a fun fact about Cher and her knowledge or lack thereof. In an early scene, she mispronounces Hadians, which was, in fact, an Alicia Silverstone error that Amy Heckerling very quickly had to be like, nobody tell her how to say Haitians, because she thought it was so good for the character, and she wanted to make sure that Alicia Silverstone didn't actually find out how to say it. (laughs) That's sweet. I mean, I feel bad for Alicia Silverstone that her ignorance is now, like, captured on film for all time and for everyone to see Would you like my big Debbie Downer for the movie? Sure. So that debate scene is actually responding to something that was happening at the time, which is that the United States was holding about 12,000 Haitians in Guantanamo Bay and separating out people who were HIV positive and like repatriating them. And it was like this whole mess. And Bush did it, but Bill Clinton followed right in on it. And so props to Amy Heckerling for actually like bringing up a real life issue, the kids debate it in a very silly way. But yeah, that was my like, uh, sad history take. You're welcome. I'm glad you bring sad history into this. It wouldn't be (laughs) our podcast if you weren't doing it. I did wonder, as I was watching, I was like, what's going to be the thing that Brie brings up this time? And now I have my answer. I should have predicted this. The other side of that debate is Amber who is a small role, and I haven't really seen that actress elsewhere, but she also does fine work. And the styling on her is bananas. I have a lot of questions about Amber as a character because she is both very distinctly part of their friend group and someone that everyone hates, and she hates them right back. She hates all of them. It is so (laughs) wild that she keeps popping up but it's just so everyone can insult her. I'm like, why do you keep inviting her to these parties? (laughs) And why does she keep coming? It might be so that she can show off her like incredible fashion sense. The second debate scene, she is in something out of like Blood Sailor Moon. She has got a sailor's hat on with a bedazzled like dollar sign on it and just this full red outfit. She looks absolutely wild. It's funny because... She is often made fun of for her styling, but she has a real dynamism to her look. I couldn't take my eyes off her. I mean, she does at one point have a literal wire hangers through the pigtails Pippi Longstocking situation, (laughs) which I couldn't believe I was looking at. (laughs) The entire friend group is really strange. Another thing that I had kind of remembered but sort of forgotten is how often the movie shows you Elton, uh, Jeremy Sisto, in the background of a whole number of scenes before he speaks, before he interacts with Cher, and before he does anything else. I texted you last night to ask if you would watch Six Feet Under just so that we did or did not talk about this based on it. But like, I'm so sorry for Jeremy Sisto. I'm sure he's delightful. But this plus Six Feet Under, that motherfucker is creepy as hell. I didn't watch Six Feet Under until well after it had come out. So I had so much investment in him as Elton specifically, which, granted, ends poorly. But the idea that he comes across as uber creepy just, like, isn't implanted in my brain in the same way. Because I, growing up, had something of a crush on Jeremy Sisto. 
I mean, he's very handsome and he has a sort of like very laconic energy to him, which is an interesting choice for Elton. We may at some point watch the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma, which I think I've been threatening you with for a while. And to give you perhaps a little teaser for that, Alan Cumming plays Elton. And they have a kind of similar, like delightfully creepy vibe. I'll put it that way. Uh, Jeremy Sisto is another one that does a great job. I think this cast throughout is really nailing it. I can't think of someone who's doing a bad job in this movie. I think Donald Faison, who plays Murray, could have been told to take it down about 20%. I don't like the relationship that he and Dion have. And because we're so attached to Dion, it just makes it hard to like Murray, I guess. Yeah, their relationship is sort of a weak link in this film in general. I have a note early on that Cher compares them to Ike and Tina Turner, which I don't think they intended to be as very distressing as it was. Yeah, I have the exact same note, except it is prefaced by, yo, Murray is a problem. (laughs) Yeah, I think that they meant to be like, oh, they're tumultuous. I was like, that is not what that implies. It's a whole different situation. I also don't like just normalizing that level of conflict for teenagers in a movie that's pitched to teenagers. Not that like a lot of teens don't have conflict in their relationships, but like you'd like to see it where everyone else is like, hey, you guys should stop because you actually love each other or share saying to Dion like, hey, you guys seem to fight quite a lot. Like, how are you doing? <laughs> I know it's a comedy. I'm sorry. No, I get it. I had a lot of problems with it, too. It was uncomfortable throughout. There's also a racial element. They're the only two black characters, and they are thrown in as, like, the constant source of conflict, whereas everyone else seems to have fairly easygoing relationships. And so, especially in that context, referencing Ike and Tina Turner feels even worse. It was just a mess. Oh, big time. I do like that Murray has one... There's a reoccurring bit where he calls Dion woman and Dion objects to it. Everybody objects to it. And Murray does have a nice little moment where he says something about like, most of the feminine pronouns do have a mocking, but not necessarily misogynist overtone. (laughs) And it's just like, it's such a a strange little bon mot that like comes out of nowhere and leaves out the same entrance it came in. I would have loved if there had been a couple more instances of that in their relationship where Mm -hmm. they were self-aware about like, yeah, we are a little dramatic, but we are also both incredibly intelligent. Like that could have saved a lot. Yeah, I was uncomfortable for all the same reasons you were. And what's the best transition out of that? Is that a good segue for us to talk about Christian for a little bit? Okay, let's talk about Christian. Every (laughs) piece of him makes zero sense. Every note I have about him is a question. (laughs) This character is so strange. He's in the 1950s. He's renting Spartacus. Like, I think the possibly most representative element about Christian is that Brittany Murphy says very early in the film, oh, you guys, like, I've never had straight friends before. And she doesn't clock him at all. Okay, A, I believe that line is implying that she's never had friends who don't use drugs before oh yeah you're probably right that's true (laughs) which ends up not being true because they are later shown using drugs but i don't think she means that she's never had heterosexual friends before oh i'm a little disappointed that that's not the case (laughs) i really liked envisioning ty's life as just a drug-fueled gay extravaganza I want to see that movie now. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, her life has gotten so boring since she arrived. Anyway, we were talking about Christian. (laughs) 
I was confused from the outset because his introduction is Wallace Shawn pulling out a report card and being like, is there a Christian in this class? And I'm like, you're handing out mid-year report cards. A, he shouldn't have one. He's never been in this class. B, you should know by December that there is not a Christian in this class. Also, what does that report card say? He doesn't go to this school. Is he all Fs? (laughs) It's a very stupid piece of writing, but it is nice that there is actually a callback to him later. This movie is weirdly tightly scripted throughout. I was impressed because it has a sort of chaotic energy, but it ends up all coming together and being sort of of a piece. Maybe we should start talking about the plot because we have just sort of been fucking everywhere. So we start off with Alicia Silverstone doing the iconic outfit maker on her computer that I have still seen constant references to people wanting. I know! Wouldn't that be so nice to have? How has no one capitalized on this ability to take pictures of your clothes and make outfits out of them with some sort of algorithm? Clearly we have the technology. I mean, as always, we're just implementing it in ways that are destructive instead of useful. I need the match mismatch button. It would help my life. For instance, this program makes the beautiful yellow plaid outfit that has become endlessly iconic. I'm going to go out on a limb here, though, and suggest possibly that that top and bottom were purchased together and therefore didn't maybe need a whole computer program to select them out of the closet together. That suit is actually one of the most expensive pieces in the whole film. People generally assume that this movie had a gigantic costume budget, which it really didn't. But that first yellow skirt and jacket were Dolce & Gabbana and were apparently incredibly expensive on their own, which makes sense because they look great. Yeah, they aren't the two most flexible items of clothing. Like you pretty much have to wear them together. I can also tell that I'm getting kind of old because a couple of the skirts I was like, These are too short, ladies. These are 16-year-old girls, and there was part of me as someone who is now my dad's age to be like, They put Dion in a plastic skirt at one point that I just wanted to, like, tug a little bit on the bottom of. If it helps, she was 28. She's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess they do dress Brittany Murphy more conservatively than they dress the other two, so that checks. It's just clear that a lot of, like, love and affection was put into the costume designer. I think we, well, we just looked that up and that was Mona May. So props to her. It's weird that I don't necessarily remember this because I was a teenager when it came out. But I think of this as a film that reflected teen culture, but it apparently also influenced a lot of teen culture. A lot of the slang was made up for the film and then became popular, for instance, Cher's use of Baldwin as a good-looking guy was only popularized after the film came out. Really? There was literally a companion book for the movie. I think she's trying, in many ways, to skewer the sort of self-involved, very rich L.A. kid. Mm -hmm. But the movie ends up feeling as aspirational as it does mocking. Like, I watched this thinking, I want to be those kids. Yeah, I don't think the movie has, like, a thesis about whether or not these people are living good, productive lives or what that could even be like, because Cher does wind up sort of having a purpose, but the only thing we actually see her, like, collect for the Pismo Beach disaster is a series of bongs. She does also have several jars of tapenade. (laughs) 
So because my brain is broken, I looked up the Pismo Beach disaster to see if it's a thing. It was created full cloth for the movie, but it is a popular term that people look up after watching this movie because they assume that it like must be a thing. I had a feeling it probably wasn't, <laughs> only because it is treated so lightly. It is mocked as a concept, and I was like, if real people were really homeless, <laughs> they probably wouldn't have been quite this cavalier. I'm just glad that there is like a never nude community for me of like people who look up like disasters from movies to find out if they're real. There are dozens of us and I'm just glad to have a home. There must be a support group somewhere. I think this is the support group, Chris. Everyone, if you are here because you like Brie, cannot stop googling historical context real or imagined please comment on our twitter that's at replaying faves f-a-v-s or go to our instagram at replaying favorites you can rate subscribe and review us on itunes not in that order and with that i'm going to transition back into the plot that we were ostensibly talking about but not actually it's tough because this is a very episodic movie. It was conceived as a television series initially, and while there is a plot structure that vaguely mirrors Emma, it is really a series of vignettes. I think the next big event is that Ty arrives at the school, and that gives us a chance to talk about Brittany Murphy, who we have not really discussed. She's so great in this. It's hard to say enough about her, like iconic lines, the accent, just her whole vibe is so great and good. It's impressive to think of her as the youngest person in this cast because she just seems like she absolutely knows what she's doing. You're never in doubt that she's going to deliver the best possible version of her line. She's so watchable. As a comparison to Emma, I think the movie messes up a little bit by making her someone who is worldly because the whole thing about, I think Harriet is the name of the character, is that she's just kind of unsophisticated and like Emma really needs to take her under her wing. Whereas like Ty seems like she has a lot more life experience than the two girls that are ostensibly mentoring her. That's true, but she doesn't know how to navigate the LA high society social scene. I think she's portrayed as like lower class and they're teaching her how to be rich. Yeah, I definitely see that. And that is also present in Emma too, where Harriet doesn't have as many connections as Emma has. It's just weird that they don't seem to learn anything from her. Like I can't see those two girls with their sort of like prissy upbringings, not wanting to like slum it a little bit and maybe like live like her. Does that make sense? I think we do see a little bit of it in that Ty and Travis have a connection right away that Cher really tries to downplay. And by the end, she realizes like, oh, I've been judgmental and should have just let the two of them be together from the start. It's not the same as Cher learning from Ty to take on like more of her perspective, but she at least understands that she's been pretty classist about her view of her friends. Yeah, I guess the holdover from Emma there, though, is that it winds up being like more appropriate that Harriet winds up with like the lower class dude because like she doesn't actually belong with like the higher class people. And she's like much more content now that she's made a match that's like more close to her station and she isn't overreaching. So the fact that it winds up being like stoner's gonna stoner. Although Travis has gone straight edge by the end. Oh, now she's going to have a straight boyfriend also, in both senses. 
While we're here, I do need to give a shout out to both Breck and Meyer for playing Travis Birkenstock so ably, and also to Amy Heckerling simply for naming one of the characters Travis Birkenstock, one of the best names ever put onto film in America's history. I have nothing but love for Travis Birkenstock. He is a being of pure warmth. Every syllable of his line reading is genuine and caring and kind. It's the one situation in which Cher ends up looking like the villain because you just can't imagine rebuffing him. Like, he's such a cool dude. Yeah, it's weird that the movie makes the choice for him to, like, go into a 12-step program because it's not like he's being destructive. I guess he does spill a drink on Cher's shoes, and apparently that is, like, an indefensible crime. That's probably just a 90s drugs are bad kids message more than anything else. Though, notably, we have no indication that Cher is going to stop smoking weed. That's true. She should have just kept the bongs. <laughs> I'm sure she has a much nicer one at home. <laughs> That's probably true. Class issues raise their ugly head again. Jumping back into the plot here, a key feature of Cher as a character is that she is both a negotiator and a matchmaker. We have not talked about her grand scheme that sort of kicks off how we perceive her in the plot to set up her two teachers. Wallace Shawn, friends. Wallace Shawn. It's hard because this movie can't be Wallace Shawn's best performance because that's a princess bride, but this comes pretty close. Like, he is delightful as this teacher, both acerbic, but also then genuinely sweet and has like a nice interaction with the other teacher. It's it's a fun little complication where we get to see like Cher do her thing. Yeah, the Mr. Hall, Miss Geist subplot is smart in so many ways. It gives us people to root for because I love both of those teachers so much. And it shows where Cher is smartest because we get to see her pick apart how each of these people would relate to the other and to set in motion machinations that are very subtle but very effective. And you were talking previously about how tight the script is. It also gives Elton the opportunity to lean forward and kiss Cher a little too close to the mouth in appreciation, which is setting up his scenes to come to. So it's really doing a lot of work to like put all the balls in the air that Cher is going to wind up juggling for essentially the rest of the movie. And it pays off at the very end because we get to have a wedding that can be the fake out for the Cher and Josh wedding, though, they go a little hard on the fake out by using a stand-in with a full head of hair for the very bald Wallace Shawn. <laughs> That's very silly. I think I might not have noticed because I was writing a note that said, I'm sorry, why are these teens at this adult wedding? I was a little sad for Miss Geist that one of her bridesmaids is just one of her students. Yeah, that's pretty grim. I, I mean, overall, none of them really seem to have like any friends because one of the saddest parts of the movie is when we are introduced to Dion who comes out of her house to her best friend saying the reason they get along is because others are jealous of them like that's not a solid basis for a friendship like Josh has no friends we never see the dad having any friends Cher isn't super close with anyone in her life to be perfectly honest I think we position Cher as both popular and invested in people's lives though like she seems to know what's going on. She's very much a social director. Maybe that's not the same as closeness, but she's at least like tapped in. The only real friendship that you see between anyone is actually between Josh and Cher. That's kind of nice. 
So the next big event that we hit is that everyone converges on the party. It's a chance for all of our characters to be in the same space, interacting with each other. A lot gets set in motion here. Bree, your thoughts on the drunken Christmas bash? Oh, I guess it is a Christmas bash, isn't it? I had never noticed until this time that Ty rides home with a still plugged in light up (laughs) still man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, you can actually see the cord coming out of the window and Brittany Murphy's just like hugging it tight. I always get this party scene confused with the one from 10 Things I Hate About You. And I'm always sure that Ty is going to smack her head. But she really just takes like, what, a shoe to the head or something? And like, that knocks her out. It's a very silly premise. She does bonk her head on a light when she sits up. I have a feeling that may have been accidental, but they just left it in. It looks like everyone's doing their best with that take. (laughs) Yeah, like Sisto sort of shepherding her off that countertop after that, I think, uh, supports your hypothesis. It's mostly a chance for almost everyone in the cast to take a moment to sing Rollin' With My Homies, which is like an interesting choice for this mostly white film, but it is very funny and weird. The only one of those that really pays off is later when Ty refers to it as our song and sings it while literally crying, which is so brilliant on Brittany Murphy's part. She delivers such a genuine sadness about it and does the hand motion, but is sobbing. (laughs) It is very cute. Also, Brittany Murphy, excellent singing voice, maybe seconded to Jeremy Sisto, who I can't believe hasn't done more vocal work. He'd be great in voiceovers. Like his, he's got such a range and timber to his speaking voice. When I'm not noticing how creeped he makes me feel, it's really lovely. Yeah, it's funny because due to the depth of his voice, he instantly seems like more of an adult. Yeah, man. On the singing side, I was deeply uncomfortable when he started singing the Cranberries at Alicia Silverstone in his car. That kind of like level of cringe is like, I think, a holdover from the Emma text too, where you were just mortified that Cher slash Emma like cannot get away from this man. So gross and bad. Then it just gets worse for poor Cher, who has nothing else to do. So she gets out of the car and immediately held at gunpoint in perhaps Alicia Silverstone's lifetime best work. (laughs) I said at the top of the show, and I just want to reiterate, I don't think that she gets enough credit as an actor for selling wholeheartedly some very silly material. In the hands of a less capable actor, that scene would just read like bad because the writing isn't super realistic, right? So you have to have someone who is able to like hang on and like follow that kite up into the sky with like how crazy the writing gets. Yeah, there's a lot going on because a character on the page isn't necessarily as likable. She's very snotty. She's very out of touch. And there's never a question in anyone's mind watching this that you would want to do anything other than spend every moment of your life with Alicia Silverstone. She's so charming. I just want to hang out with her. I think because she was in some like lighter movies that the culture decided that Alicia Silverstone was light. And I think you have to be like a very disciplined and smart actor to be able to deliver this kind of material. The other wrinkle to that, though, is that she follows this up very shortly after with Batman and Robin, where everyone talks about how quote unquote fat she is for Batgirl and her career takes a huge hit. Wait, what? There was an immense discourse throughout the production of Batman and Robin about how Alicia Silverstone was 
too fat to play Batgirl. One of these days, I'm just going to leave this country and never come back. What the fuck? Yeah, so the culture got Alicia Silverstone, and I'm very sorry about it. I want to give another warm shout out to the Babysitter's Club series where she does play Christy's mom. She's great in it. Again, if you have been or have affiliation with teen girls, it's a non-miss. It's so good. So let's jump forward a little bit. After the party, we move pretty quickly on to our introduction of Christian. I don't think we actually discussed both the weirdness of this character being gay, but also kind of like what Cher's reaction to him is. So like, can we talk about him a little bit more or like their their scenes together? Yeah, this whole interlude is strange. He walks into class without even a backpack. He's just showing up mid-year and she just stares at him. She loses her damn mind. It's such a strange joke to make him sort of like rebel without a cause meets like Bing Crosby. I think they're taking off from the vaguely 50s styling of some of the 90210 characters. If you go back and look at like Luke Perry and Jason Priestley, they're sort of playing at that, but they really amp it up with Christian in a way that, again, I think is trying to make culture rather than reflect it. Yeah, I suppose. And I guess this is when the culture was also starting to go into like the resurgence of like swing music. It's just such a weird characterization. I guess let me ask directly, like, does that character read as gay to you? He doesn't really. I appreciate that they don't lean on a lot of gay stereotypes. They go for he has a confident sense of style and an affected air. And I do think there's a certain queerness in going for broke on an identity that doesn't make any sense. I do know (laughs) a lot of gay or gay adjacent teenagers who are just kind of like, I have a thing. So (laughs) yeah, that's fair. In that regard, I think it's in some ways a more honest portrayal of gay teenager than what a lot of movies might pull out of the bag. Then the script sort of does the opposite where they're just like, Would you enjoy watching Spartacus? And it's like, okay, like we get that part of it. Like they maybe could have gone with like a musical if they wanted to keep it going. Like even Cher should have known about that. Well, it's funny because Spartacus is in some ways the kind of gay reference that Amy Heckerling's generation would get that Cher actually wouldn't. Like I as a teenager didn't have a context for Spartacus being a gay movie and I was the age that this was pitched at. Mm. So to me... I think you're right that it should have been a musical or something, because, again, with Christian being sort of flung out of time, I don't know why he knows what that movie is. (laughs) You know, we've seen Cher be all caught up in creating the perfect outfit and creating the perfect friend group. And then when this boy is coming over, suddenly something new is happening. So, like, she knows that she's supposed to make the house smell like cookies, but she has absolutely no interest or skill in performing, like, a woman activity. Maybe some of that is like a class issue because she's been raised to expect that she'll never have to cook for herself. But I think that it's one of the movie's most complicated moments in terms of what does it look like for a young woman to construct femininity? Yeah, I think in general, it helped this movie immensely that it was written and directed by a woman. Big time. I don't think it would have taken off if it hadn't had those insights in there. We talked about this a little in the intro. My little sister 
latched onto this movie, digging both claws in as tight as she could. <laughs> like, this just resonated with her so deeply. And I have to imagine it's because Amy Heckerling really understood the experience of being a teenage girl. Chris, I have a real serious question to ask you. Yeah? Is this our first film directed by a woman? I think it might be. Wow. Okay, so so we went back through because I panicked and we did have Tu Wong Fu, which was directed by a woman. In fairness, we are choosing movies that one of us in theory like hasn't seen. Most American films, which is mostly what we've watched, are directed by men. So, yeah, man, our um our representation, it's not great. Listen, if we start going down the list of things that we have not represented in our film selections, we're going to be here all day being sad. There is like an alternate universe where we just watch movies that both of us know and love. And I think the podcast goes a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's too late now. <laughs> Back to Christian. So Cher and Christian go to a college party which is being played by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. It's the 90s-est thing that I have seen in a while. That band has a man whose entire job it is to skank on stage. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. It's so strange that that's his job. It appears to also be B-sides. Like, we listened to two full songs that I never heard on the radio by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Oh, no, the first song they play was definitely on the radio, but I think probably because of this film. I imagine that the Boston's in general were popularized by their presence here. Like, this soundtrack did well in general, so they weirdly probably got a lift from having done this movie. <laughs> I'm never going to stop laughing that, like, I referred to them, like, in a derogatory manner as the Boston's, and then you followed it up with, like, that's just their casual and common name. <laughs> I'm not going to keep saying Mighty Mighty in front of this band's <laughs> name. That's a lot of self-aggrandizing. All I'm saying is that we get, like, better off dead levels of footage of the band. Also, like, what kind of college party takes place, like, in a school gymnasium? There's a lot that doesn't make sense about this party. A, that a lot of high schoolers have shown up. B, isn't everyone on break? Don't we establish that Josh specifically isn't in school? Why is this college full of people? It's winter break. Also, notably, to my comment before about how no one has friends, Josh doesn't know anyone at the party except for the high schoolers. The age gaps throughout are strange. This is a scene where Christian is seen flirting with the bartender, who is definitely in his 30s. Later, when Ty falls down the stairs, the first person to check on her is definitely 40. I'm not sure this is a college party. This just might be teens and predators. There is also a shot much earlier, I think in the classroom, where there is a woman behind Cher's shoulder at some point who's just straight 40s. Looks like she has just finished a date with Wallace Shawn or something. Like, I can't explain her presence. It's a really strange problem that Clueless has that is the opposite of most teen movies. Most teen movies cast 20-somethings and put them around teen extras. Mm -hmm. This movie 
found teen leads, but somehow <laughs> couldn't find a high school student for the background to save its life. No, it's so true. The best thing that I can say about this scene is that it makes my memory and heart go back to the scene in my so-called life where Delia and Ricky dance to What is Love? I also noticed an interesting thing this time. Cher looks across the room to see Josh. When she looks at Josh, Christian starts dancing with another boy, and Josh looks back at Cher with a real concern. And I think we are meant to understand that he recognizes that Cher is on a date with a gay guy, and she doesn't know that yet. Counterpoint to that. Being a straight girl in high school is horrible because all of the boys are horrible. (laughs) And occasionally, it is nice to think that a guy who acts like a human might be straight. I think the best argument that homosexuality is not a choice is that any girl graduates high school straight. Oh, 100%. Like, it's no wonder that Cher gravitates towards Christian. Why wouldn't she? He dresses well doesn't attempt to sexually assault her like Elton does. I mean, is Christian the first gay person she has ever met? She's no Thai, I'll tell you that. (laughs) So after Cher's quote-unquote relationship with Christian sort of implodes, this is kind of when we see her like deepening relationship with Ty and Ty's potential interest in Josh. This sort of kicks off the end game, if you will. She sort of eschewed all other suitors. And then she's like, no, no, I'm jealous, which is a weird way to get there. But I don't know. Is that present in Emma as well? Yeah. And I guess this is the biggest indictment of straight men, both present in Clueless and in Emma, which is that both Josh and Knightley are just like vaguely kind. (laughs) And the lead in both shows reads that as he's obviously in love with her. Aw. I was about to say I'm sorry straight men, but I'm actually sorry for straight men. Like, I'm sorry that they exist. I feel bad a lot of them are trapped in a cage of masculinity's making. Well, none of them are listening, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can't prove it, but that would be my wild, wild speculation. (laughs) (laughs) So this launches Cher's decision not to use her usual machinations to, like, make a romance happen, but simply to, I guess, better herself and become someone that Josh would take notice of? Two things about that. One, again, I think what the movie fails on a little bit is that we have perceived Josh already having a lot of interest in Cher. So, like, that part of it is a little flat. But before she makes herself a better person, she, like, trashes her friendship with Ty. On the one hand... I did like that this felt like a very teenage roller coaster of they're best friends and then they're so mad at each other and then they have a tearful makeup and then they're best friends again as if it never happened, which I think does speak to a certain teenage experience of everything being the height of emotion. But it does add a strange conflict in that it seems like they are fighting over essentially nothing. Counterpoint. It gives Brittany Murphy one of the best lines in cinema. You're a virgin who can't drive. She delivers a number of deeply iconic line readings. I mean, we have not discussed how sad it is that we lost Brittany Murphy, who is an absolutely brilliant actress in many things. This is just a tour de force from, again, a 17-year-old actor. We don't know what we would have seen from her, but I genuinely believe that we would have seen like some really tremendous performances from her. Like, it's just a damn shame. 
But she did give us this, which is an indelible take on an indelible character in the culture. I could see your face just like attempting to lift the mood out of the terrible place it had gone. I didn't have a transition. I won't lie. (laughs) So the last thing that really happens is Cher and Josh are made paralegals for some reason. Shockingly, that doesn't go great. This is probably also a good time to stop and talk about Dan Hedaya, who we have not really spoken about, but who is also a replaying faves fave. He's so funny here. He too, like Brittany Murphy, just gives iconic line readings. He's great. I'm glad that Alicia Silverstone gets to play a lot of scenes against him because I think they also have a crackling chemistry. She really plays up the girlishness around him. You can see her totally wrapping her dad around her little finger in such a smart way. Yeah. Working the refs. (laughs) (laughs) He does seem like he's enjoying himself here. As a lawyer, however, his character makes some like really strange decisions. Yeah. That guy who shouts at them, I'm like, sir... It's your fault, and we both know this. Wait, it's whose fault? I was going to say, that guy's not wrong. He's not wrong that they fucked up. He's yelling at the wrong people. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He shouldn't yell at Cher in particular. But as now an adult myself, I can appreciate his frustration in watching two teenagers who are obviously about to smooch fool around while he's trying to get work done in the evening at someone's house. Yeah, I get the impression that Cher's dad, not an awesome boss. He keeps being like, (laughs) you have to be at my home at night, both doing a lot of work and babysitting my child. Yeah, because he's not around. Where the fuck is he? The only reason Dan isn't there is because Dan can't be there when they kiss. (laughs) The movie does have to go to exceptional lengths to remind us several times that Cher and Josh are not related by blood. I guess that's my other question. Casting her memory all the way back to the scene where Josh follows Cher to that college party. There's a look that Dan Hedaya gives Josh as he walks out the door that's like big smirk. And I'm like, are you excited that your teen daughter and your ex-stepson are getting together to like bone? Is that good? As you said at the beginning, it involves an unnecessary complication to put a familial relationship in there. I get that it's by marriage. I get It's not technically incest. As soon as you're raising the phrase not technically incest is where the movie goes wrong. Yeah, I'm tripping over X and step and still landing at brother. You know how Emma gets around this? He's a neighbor. So much easier. Why isn't he a fucking neighbor? Like a neighbor whose parents are never home. So he like spent a ton of time at their house growing up. I... Never for a second thought that the original story didn't have him as some kind of relative. I thought that was a weird holdover. They added it? Yeah, he's the guy who, like, owns the mansion next door in Emma. Sweet baby Jesus. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They've added an incesty tone. And at that point, I'd take another run at the script. Yeah, because it is the one thing that detracts from what is otherwise... Well, I guess he's also too old for her, but... (laughs) Taking those things out, their final staircase scene is pretty cute. You just gotta sort of not think about the rest. Luckily, at that point, they have mostly stopped shooting the two of them together. We get a shot of them on the stairs, but then it's mostly eyeline shots of the two of them in close to medium range. So at that point, you can just be Cher and Paul Rudd can be speaking to you. And that's how I always view it. It's nice to look at Paul Rudd, who is a nice looking man, and also... 
he's going to go back to college at the end of the summer and she'll still be in high school and this isn't going anywhere. (laughs) I did think we were going to talk about the heat that Paul Rudd serves a little bit more, but go ahead. (laughs) I would love to talk about the heat that he serves, except I'm still uncomfortable with the fact that she's 16. The thing, though, is there were so many movies like this, especially at the time, like Christina Ricci is only 17 when she does the opposite of sex and she's making out with like lots of dudes in that movie. They really just allowed a lot of young women to be almost adults. It's almost like our culture has an issue with girls right on the cusp of adulthood. I think you might have tapped into a really interesting and new idea there. That's the kind of hard-hitting commentary that I know that everyone comes to replaying favorites for. Well, I don't think we're going to top that insight. So, Bree, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts on Clueless? We've talked through some of the more or less glaring issues that come up when, as always, we look at a movie that we love critically. I still think, as you mentioned, this is a tight piece of writing and directing that is reflecting on some of 90s culture, but also, I think, has heckerling stamp on it as an older person as well. So you kind of see those things in tension with each other every once in a while. But the performances by all the cast are tremendous. And it's just a fun movie. It still holds up. 100%. It goes down easy. If anyone ever is like, do you want to watch Clueless right now? I will probably say yes. I'm sure I will be going back to this one many times in the future. And I plan to watch it without a critical eye going forward. Because that's the ideal way to watch almost any movie. (laughs) We've ruined movies for ourselves and for you. Uh, Well, that again is the kind of thing that you come to a movie podcast for. So we're glad that we're able to like deliver ruination and sadness to your life each and every week. Speaking Speaking of of which, which... (laughs) I hate to tell you this, but it's you again. I am ready. I wasn't until moments ago when I realized I would have to be ready. So we haven't done a lot of animation, so I'm going to take us back into that realm. Have you seen the 1999 film The Iron Giant? Is this movie about the McCarthy era? That's in there, yeah. I think I might have seen part of this movie for a class on McCarthyism, which tells you so much about me and explains a lot of this podcast, but I don't remember anything about it. Is this because of Christian's Rebel Without a Cause vibe? No, this is just a movie I like. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm always trying to decide if there's like deeper themes based on the movies that we pick. But like usual, no, there's not. It's just a cool, fun movie. I've heard tremendous things about it. My memory is that everybody cries at this movie. Is that correct? I sure the fuck do. I'll tell you that much. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So join us next week when I am sobbing. Oh, if you're crying, I'm crying. My memory of this is that it possibly has a orphan and or a scene where they can't be friends anymore and those are my two things so thanks in advance all right we'll see you next week bye 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 please leave a one-star review on itunes